Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Encouraging you to live as an ambassador of God's kingdom in the world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. this Wednesday, the 2nd of June. So if you missed it, um, I think it is worth your time to go back and listen to the audio of the speech that President Biden delivered yesterday in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Why? Uh, Because it was the 100th anniversary of what I will describe as a racially motivated massacre. More than 300 black citizens and the destruction of 37 blocks of the community known as Greenwood, including black churches, black owned businesses and neighborhoods, um, were raised. They were burned to the ground 100 years ago yesterday. And much like the internment of Japanese Americans during World War II and the deaths of, I mean, untold millions, something like 55 million indigenous people who inhabited what we now call America. Uh, The racial massacre that took place 100 years ago in Tulsa, Oklahoma, is not a history that most of us, the overwhelming majority of us, ever learned in school. Uh, We didn't learn about the Japanese or the American internment of of Japanese citizens. Most of us did not learn a whole lot about um, the entire tribal nations that uh, against whom genocide was committed. Um, And we learned nothing about these, uh, I would say, uh, Tulsa is an example of, it is not the only such uh, event in American history related to the the slaughter of black neighbors by white neighbors. But it happened. It's awful. And we must reckon with it. And for those who would say it happened 100 years ago, it's time to get over it, it's time to get beyond it, um, the, I want you to think back in your own family history uh, about what your family was doing, what your ancestors were doing 100 years ago, where they lived, and the wealth accumulated generation to generation because they owned homes and they had businesses. And I want you to imagine if 100 years ago all of that was simply taken away. Insurance companies did not make good on insurance policies. The government um, uh, really papered over what happened 100 years ago. And we've never as a nation reckoned with it. And, and Tulsa is not the only place that it happened. And so it's important to visit the event in much the same way that it's important for us to, uh, to recognize what was happening, let's say, in the days of the judges. There's horrible history in the Bible, horrible, horrible history. And we recognize that. And it was in those days when people were doing what was right in their own eyes. Well, we have periods of history and places and time like that as well. And it's important that we recognize it and and begin to reckon with it. Now, in my opinion, the president sought to do more than uh, could effectively be accomplished in one speech yesterday. I felt like his use uh, to score political points um, is what resulted in last night's news coverage 
of the speech. And I think that that was wasted. Um, I think that he missed the substance of what he might have accomplished. I thought he was really there to give presence and positional acknowledgement to the horrors that were experienced by one group of Americans at the hands of another group of Americans 100 years ago and what it means for us today. So um, the descriptions of the events were very graphic. They were necessary. But there are some things that as you listen to the speech, you it, my guess is as a Christian, if you're like me, your brow is going to furrow and you're going to say, okay, that was a strange reference to the Bible. That was a strange attempt at humor. That was a strange um, way to acknowledge the people present. Um, and so it missed the mark in many ways. But it was important. And any time that Scripture is quoted, I think we ought to ask ourselves, was it quoted in its context and was it quoted accurately um, and appropriately? Uh, if you listen to the speech and you are like me, you are going to uh, say no in answer to that particular question. So uh, the verse comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It was taken out of context, read in its context um, in the entirety of the 13th chapter of, of 1 Corinthians would be appropriate. Even more appropriate would be to read it in the context of chapters 12 and 13. So where in the word are you today? Let me encourage you to read 1 Corinthians chapters 12 and 13 and then Listen to President Biden's speech from yesterday in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and see what you make of his use of verse 12 from chapter 13. All right, next up, we are planning to have Bill English, although we're having a little hard time getting him on the horn. So send up a little prayer that we can connect with Bill. And we're going to be talking next about President Biden's proposed 2022 budget. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Uh, send up a little prayer. We're having a hard time connecting with our friend Bill English from BibleandBusiness.com. So while Paul continues to do that, I am uh, going to share with you a few of my observations related to the 2022 budget submitted to Congress by uh, President Joe Biden and his team. It comes in at $6 trillion. It would be the highest level of government spending uh, since World War II. And I would say it signals... Um, a move toward government in everything. So if you're a small government person or a the government, you know, really should be as small as possible and touching as few areas of my life as possible, which is sort of my approach, um, then you just inherently don't like this. Uh, the part about it that I like the least about which I am most exercised is that President Biden's uh, proposed budget would force all taxpayers to pay for abortions. So that rises to my top level concern in terms of a Christian worldview. All right, we have connected with Bill English from BibleAndBusiness.com. Bill, I have teed up the conversation related to the president's proposed 2022 budget. What caught your attention? Just the whole irresponsibility of it. It's just an irresponsible budget to to go $1.8 trillion in debt every year for the foreseeable future is just irresponsible. It's not a budget that is grounded in any kind of economic theory that says we're going to make it, that, that says we're going to be um, 
successful with this budget. It is an ideological budget uh, based in his um, his liberal theology, or not theology, but liberal politics. Not that liberal politics are bad, but even liberal politics should pay for what they are spending. And so my when I when I read through the president's summary uh, yesterday in preparation for today, um, it was just the whole irresponsibility of it. The fact that he's going to have uh, people pay for abortions, like you were saying, um, really offends me. Uh, the killing of human beings is not something to be taken lightly, and uh, it, it, it's an offensive budget and it's an irresponsible budget. Um, offensive and irresponsible. I'll um, I'll take that. Um, is there anything specific in it that you wanted to uh, that you wanted to highlight today and talk about? I know that there are some tax plans in here that are a little bit shocking and surprising to people. The things that are covered are probably not a huge surprise to people because it's the entire laundry list of things that anyone on the ideological left wants to have everyone else pay for. And so I don't think that what's what's in the budget in terms of what's covered is that surprising, but their plan to pay for it, which doesn't even pay for it, um, maybe would be of interest to our listeners. Who Who's really going to pay for this, Carmen? Yeah, I mean, generations. Generations it's the next are going to generations. Yeah. You know, when you and I are 80 years old, uh, the next generations are going to rise up and call our generation the most selfish, self-absorbed generation that this world has ever seen, in part because we are impoverishing them with all of this debt. You, you simply cannot go into this much debt and not have negative consequences at some point down the road. Uh, this is this is just I, I keep coming back to the word word irresponsible. The thing that struck me wasn't so much about what he wanted to spend it on roads, bridges, that kind of thing. I get that, and I think there's there's bipartisan support for much of the infrastructure that he wants to do. But the fact that he's not paying for it, and the fact that he called this a sound fiscal budget is 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 the phraseology that he used. Uh, shows you just how out of touch they are with basic economic theory and basic economic laws. Uh, these guys are out of control, and this budget uh, demonstrates that to me. All right, let's take a very brief break, and when we come back, um, let's talk about what we are hearing from um, the EEOC, which uh, I'm going to have to remind myself what that is, um, uh, in relationship to requiring people to take the vaccine, how companies can mandate vaccines for workers. That conversation up next with Bill English. All right, we're continuing our conversation with Bill English from BibleandBusiness.com. Bill, what's going on in terms of what employees can expect as they return to work and what companies can mandate in terms of uh, the COVID vaccine? Companies are really wrestling with this whole, can we mandate a vaccine topic right now? Uh, Look, they're they're really caught between two worlds here. One world, uh, one part of the law says you have to provide a safe working environment for your employees. That's mandated by various regulations by the EEOC, by DOL, and other uh, alphabet 
that agencies. And then there's this other part uh, that says that people have a right to their personal health care choices and that the company doesn't have a right to impose on those personal health care choices. And so how does a company put this together? I know there's a hospital, um, I'm going from memory here, Carmen, there's a hospital in Texas that has just required uh, their employees to become COVID vaccinated. And I think, I wanna say 170 nurses have come together to sue them. Uh, so somebody has to be, has to kind of be the first pioneer here in this thing. And somebody has to be willing to take the lawsuits. And apparently there's a hospital chain in Texas that's willing to do that. Uh, the other part that the, the companies have to consider is that both all of these vaccines are still under emergency use authorization. As we've looked at this with, within the company that I'm running, which is a 670-employee healthcare company, uh, we have made the decision to wait until these vaccines have full use authorization. Then we will watch kind of what the big boys do and see how they handle uh, this whole vaccine thing. And then, and then we're going to make our decisions, not necessarily based on what they do, but uh, being informed by what the big boys do. What should employees expect? Um, honestly, uh, they should expect uncertainty for a period of time. Uh, but there's, it would not surprise me at all, Carmen, if uh, there's a government agency or two out there that are formulating rules right now behind their uh, black curtains and uh, they're going to come out with a whole matrix of vaccines that that employers are going to be allowed to require of employees. I think this is just going to become a part of this. Um, wouldn't surprise me if this is also settled in the courts somehow. All right. Yeah, the uh, the, the story that you're referring to, um, I have now pulled it up. Texas hospital workers sue over vaccine mandates. Uh, it's at the Houston Methodist Health System. Yes. Um, yes. That is a really interesting uh, conversation, and the people involved in the lawsuit are um, are interesting as well. I like it that it's not just frontline health workers who are engaged in this. I mean, the nurses and surgical uh, staff are involved, but um, but this guy who is described as let's see where did I see that the the hospital's director of corporate risk. Like you'd think that guy would would be a guy they would have circled into the conversation. <laughs> <laughs> One would think, he's, right? <laughs> right. I mean, he's engaged in the lawsuit, right? And he is. Uh, he says, "Look, I've been working from home. I don't have uh, any direct contact with patients." And quote, "My civil rights and liberties um, are being trampled upon. My right to protect myself from unknown side effects of these vaccines has been uh, placed below the optics of quote leading medicine." It's an interesting. That's an interesting conversation. And I would think that if people working in healthcare are having these conversations, um, people who are working in other environments that are even further from the health concerns of others um, would would be in a position to say no. Should an employer seek to require um, vaccination? I just it's a it's a robust conversation, and it's one in which we certainly want and need to be engaged. All right, I ongoing. sent you. Oh yes, sure, I'm go ahead. sorry. It's an ongoing conversation at the intersection of personal liberty versus the common good. And this is the, that large conversation we've been having since 1776. Amen. Um, okay, so I sent you um, a headline that I found very curious from the New York Times, how the world ran out of everything. Now, that was a little bit of clickbait for me because uh, I am a person who holds as a primary presupposition that uh, – 
God is sufficient and that God has supplied everything that is necessary for the accomplishing of his will in and through my life. And so, you know, we're never going to, quote, run out of everything. But people have experienced shortages in some industries. Can you tell us maybe what's going on here? Well, supply chains have have been interrupted as manufacturing has been slowed due to COVID. And uh, you're you're seeing price fluctuations in, in the supply chain as a result. And so uh, business models are being disrupted because people cannot get, uh, not people, manufacturers cannot get the supplies they need to manufacture what they need to manufacture so that we can have the goods and sometimes the services that we need. And an example of that is these electronic chips that uh, go into our automobiles. You know, <laughs> I, I drive uh, between Maple Grove and Otsego, Minnesota, every day, and I drive past uh, this very large Chevrolet dealer. And normally that dealer has several hundred automobiles on on his lot, and, and there's probably at least 100 F-150s sitting there. I drove by the other day. There were six F-150s mm. on his lot, six. I counted mm. them, and I was going 70 miles an hour, and I counted them, right? So these these supply chains are, are, are just getting disrupted, and um, – it's going to take us a while to get back to that. Uh, in terms of the, is God sufficient? Of course he is. Oh, I know where they are. Needs. I've just discovered. This didn't take What's me very that? long. I Googled F-150 shortage. They, they're all sitting in, um, in parking lots in Detroit because there's a semiconductor shortage. So they're waiting for this one part. Right. They're all, they're all sitting there. The right. Ford F-150s and apparently the Edge SUV, they're just sitting there. Okay, there you yeah. go. Now I know. I feel like I, I feel like I need to do some real-time research from time to time. There you go. Well, I'm glad you do. And so what, you know, how do we, you know, and that's just an example of what's happening in supply chains literally around the world. And it shows how interconnected our world is. I, I mm. don't, I check me on this, but I think those semiconductors are, Chips are coming out of Asia, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, that's exactly right. So China specifically, um, mm-hmm. yeah. Which you know is is a whole nother conversation, right? I mean, how do we how do we do this much business with one of our arch enemies uh, as as a nation? And when are we going to learn that as an enemy they can shut down our country by simply turning off the supply chain, and they can create all kinds of economic uh, and uh, and personal havoc in our lives by simply saying we're not going to supply these things to you anymore, because see China doesn't care about their people. We care about our people. China will let their people suffer. We won't, and that's one of the fundamental differences. And so this this idea of bringing manufacturing back to America, even though prices go up, even though I'm politically conservative, I really support that notion. I support the notion that we need as a nation to become more self-sufficient and not be as reliant on a, on a country that really doesn't like us and wants to see our, our way of life go away. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, um, as always, uh, bright, sunny, and cheerful Yeah, that's me, you know, from, Bummer yeah. Bill. Mm-hmm. Bummer Bill. Yeah. Oh, mm-hmm. let's see. Uh, we, have a, we have a listener who has said, Bill English has now empowered you as an economic researcher. Yeah, it's just I'm just a real-time Googler. I'm not actually... <laughs> please, please do not give me any sort of credit as a researcher. That would be... Oh, 
That would be a compliment totally misapplied. Hey, Bill, Anthony Fauci apparently found time to write a book. He did. Now, you also found time to write a book, but you were not nearly as um, you were as busy as he was, but not in such a high profile way. So remind people what the title of the book is and where they can find it. Uh, it's called A Christian Theology of Business Ownership, although you know what? If you're not a business owner, a lot of this will apply to you. You can find it at Amazon or most online book retailers. All right. And then um, I just want to say, if anybody out there knows how we used to build trucks without semiconductors, like, let's just get those rolling again. All right. There you go. That's my <clears throat> that's my encouragement. Let's go back to go forward. All right, Bill English, as always, thank you so much. You guys can visit with him at BibleandBusiness.com. we got to take a break for Breakpoint. All right, we talk about Christianity. We talk about Christ, the Christian right. What about the Christian left? What does the Christian left mean? Who is involved in that? Um, has the church been invaded? Is there a spirit of the world in the church these days? And if so, um, you know, like how did it take root? So how has liberal thought entered into our sanctuaries, into our way of thinking and undermined the very foundations of what the church is called to be and do? We are going to be equipped for uh, recognizing the Christian left and responding to it in a conversation with author Lucas Miles. The book is The Christian Left, How Liberal Thought Has Hijacked the Church. We'll be right back. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. This is Max Locato, Quiet Servants. The supporting cast of the kingdom of God, they seek to do what is right. They cook dinners. They visit the sick. It was the servant spirit of Mary that led God to select her to be the mother of Jesus. She was simple. She said, I am the servant of the Lord. Let this happen to me as you say. When God wants to bring Christ into the world, he looks for servants. No diploma, specific bloodline, prestigious birthplace or fat bank account required. Let all unassuming people of the world be reminded, God can use you. This is Max Lucado, and this is How Happiness Happens. Lucas Miles has joined us before. He's a writer, a speaker, a film producer, host of Faithwire's The Lucas Miles Show, co-host of the Church Boys podcast. Uh, and he, you can check him out. You can check out everything he's doing, actually, at lucasmiles.org. That's the, like, one-stop shop for all things Lucas. Um, today, he's joining us to talk about his brand-new book, The Christian Left, How Liberal Thought Has Hijacked the Church. Lucas, welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Okay, so let's start with this. Um, who or what is the Christian left? Great question. So the Christian left is really this growing constituency of Christians and sometimes, you know, really Christians by name only who have embraced uh, leftist ideology, liberal thought, and and oftentimes Marxist theory. And they are presenting themselves in our churches, really uh, drawing and, and at times dragging the church further and further towards 
um, uh, ideas that are antithetical to Scripture um, that would be manifest in things like pro-choice doctrine, uh, pro-LGBT doctrine, and trying uh, uh, to really push kind of a view of Christian socialism uh, onto the American church. Okay, and when we when we use this term, the Christian left, I'm not sure that we're using it in opposition to the Christian right, as others might describe that uh, that movement. I think we are using it to describe a group of people who are not recognizable in terms of the historic faith once delivered to the saints. Would that be accurate? Absolutely. The Christian left is really a term that the left has has uh, owned and adopted themselves. This is not a, a name calling. This is something that they have identified with. And you'll also hear terms like progressive Christianity or liberal Christianity. Specifically, the, the teaching of liberal Christianity goes all the way back to the 1700s when people started moving away from the divinity of Jesus and began teaching a Jesus who, you know, that they called the historic Christ, who was more like the great social organizer rather than the savior of the world that went on to inspire things like Marxism, liberation theology, et cetera. And so when we talk about the Christian left, this is a term that they have identified and it is really in contrast to um, biblical Orthodox Christianity. Okay, so you drew a distinction there in that answer that I think is really important. Um, how we understand Christ, who he is, and what he has done, and what in the world the church is, those are really the most basic parts of this conversation that we need to be able to identify. 100%. And look, when you, I'm a student of church history. When you understand church history, uh, what you see is that there's nothing new under the sun. The church has dealt with all of these issues before. Uh, you know, really the, the Christian left or progressive Christianity, it's really sort of this revival of Gnosticism that the early church faced. Uh, and the church dealt with it then, and it, it had very specific um, uh, distinctions that the church made in order to uh, discern what is what is true, what is right teaching, and what is heresy and what is fallacy. And so, you know, we, we've dealt with this before, but there's a resurgence in this. And now that, you know, the left, uh, progressive left has found sort of a new partner in the faith in, uh, in Marxist thought and in liberation theology and critical theory that has really sort of empowered this and given it some new life. And I think that's brought a lot of added confusion because we've seen many of our pastors and even some of our Christian institutions and Christian higher ed institutions have, have been tempted to uh, be drawn into this, which is one of the reasons why I wrote this book, The Christian Left, which was really bring attention and expose uh, some of the false doctrines here. All right. So that's what we're doing in The Christian Left, how liberal thought has hijacked the church, bringing to the forefront of the conversation um, the things that I think get talked around, they get talked about Social justice is something that sounds absolutely like what we are called to as Christians, um, but social justice is language that is now captive to a particular conversation. Um, inclusivity versus exclusivity, like, right, I want to be a person who is inclusive, but I also recognize that Christ makes exclusive claims. And we have to be able to to talk about and weigh and understand the way the terms are being used. Because when you talk about hijacking, like, right, we're all on a plane or we're all in the church, but there's one group of people that is taking some language and using it in a, in a way that brings other people into 
the captivity of a thought process and moves things, hijacks the the, de- the destination, like taking things in a direction um, not uh, what God nor Christ intends for the life of the church. Have have I captured the spirit of what you're talking about in the Christian left? I think absolutely. I mean, liberation theology, which is really sort of the extreme left within the church, is this teaching that has inspired what we call social justice. And basically, uh, liberation theology is the belief that God has a favorite, and his favorite is anyone who is deemed to be an oppressed person. And and basically, you know, it, it's antithetical to what Scripture teaches that God uh, is no respecter of persons. God doesn't care what how much you know you have in your bank account, what color your skin is. He, there's no what country you come from. The Lord is looking at the heart of man, and and Scripture and Christianity have always been very clear on that in the past. But what we're seeing now is this division that's coming in through progressive Christianity that is trying to really separate people uh, based upon class, based upon race. And it and yes, the Bible is inclusive in that Jesus died for the sins of the whole world, but it's also exclusive in that only those who receive it by grace through faith are able to participate. And so, you know, when we're talking about salvation, there's a paradox that exists, and it is inclusive and exclusive. The moment we separate that and make it only exclusive or only inclusive, we have actually violated the gospel of grace and pushed people away from Jesus himself. All right, Lucas Miles and I are going to continue this conversation in just a moment. When we come back, I'm going to ask Lucas, okay, how can I identify this? If this is going on in the church where I worship, how can I identify it? What does the Christian left look like when it shows up at church? That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Continuing my conversation with Lucas Miles, you can find him at lucasmiles.org. He's got all kinds of great things going on you're going to want to check out. We're talking today about his newest book, The Christian Left, How Liberal Thought Has Hijacked the Church. Um, Lucas, let's. Um, I, I love what you do back here in the questions to consider part of the, uh, of the epilogue, um, and that is is your church part of the Christian left? And you have these questions to consider. I think that for a lot of people, this is um, this is really a rubber meets the road page in the book because um, it's one thing to to have a sense of progressive theology and to know how words are being used um, in politics. It's another thing to ask the question: Is my church a part of this? You know, the early church faced uh, a threat of Gnosticism, and that was uh, really the equivalent of their uh, progressive Christianity. And uh, one of the early church fathers, he wrote about this, and he said that basically the reason why the early church struggled to defeat Gnosticism is because they didn't understand it. And I think it's really that same spirit with which I wrote this book, because it's so important that we understand what it is that is coming against Christianity that is really um, contrary to the message of Jesus. And I think a lot of people, they hear stuff going on in their pulpits, but they're not sure maybe how to put their finger on it or what aspect of it is always, you know, off. And so I tried to give them this list to really uh, help them identify or evaluate. You know, this isn't meant to, uh, you know, create conflict or weaponize people, but just as a tool to really help you discern, you know, am I in a church that is uh, starting to maybe drift into this 
leftist thought. So, you know, asking questions like, what does my church teach about salvation? Do they still celebrate people being born again? You know, the Christian left really has more of a, uh, uh, you know, they don't believe in original sin. They, they don't, they really downplay the need for salvation. It's sort of, you know, everyone is good and just the system is bad. Uh, and so if you see, you know, still experiences where people are being, you know, uh, um, encouraged to be born again and given that opportunity to, you know, leave a life of sin, you know, for, uh, for this gift of righteousness that we have, that is showing that your church is a lot more most likely still headed towards orthodoxy. Uh, how is the or how is the Bible handed, handled? You know, what is the does the church have a downgraded view of Scripture, or do they still believe it's infallible and inerrant? Um, how is the church responding to you know issues of same sex attraction, transgenderism, uh, you know, criminal behavior, protests? How are they viewing these things in our culture? Uh, do they still really celebrate the rule of law and and right living, or have they uh, you know started making excuses for different types of uh, behaviors or lifestyles? Um, you know. What does the church teach about the family? Uh, you know, we saw a Marxist group this last year really come against the nuclear family. And I think that, you know, uh, many churches really got on board with that. Uh, unfortunately, I think we have to look at does the church still believe in the family and, and gender and sexuality, the way in which the Bible teaches it? Of course, we could look at things like, is the church pro-life or pro-choice? Um, you know, how does the church view, uh, you know, uh, maybe support for, you know, say the military or, or praying for our leaders? Uh, these are all sort of what I call the canary in the cage uh, to give us that marker of is where we're at really a toxic environment or is it a place that's safe for us to grow and worship in the Lord? Uh, so I think this list of questions is really is excellent and essential. Um, as a person who spent um, a couple of decades in a very progressive mainline denomination, um, I can tell you that there are ways to get around or to answer these questions in a way that would satisfy an evangelical <laughs> who is not very astute. And so I want to encourage people to ask the follow-up question. So, um, you know, if you're, if you're going to the pastor or to the elders and you're asking a question about marriage and the family um, and how it's viewed in our church, I'm not sure that, um, that it goes far enough to ask the question about same-sex marriage or transgenderism. I think that we have to ask very specific questions about, you know, do, do we believe what God has said about the design of human life, the design of human beings made in his image as male and female? Do we believe that God has created us to be, uh, to live in fidelity in marriage between one biological man and one biological woman um, or chastity and singleness? And what do we mean when we use the word chastity? What does it mean to be chaste? Like, I think you have to ask very specific follow-up secondary questions um, because, I am very familiar with folks who would be able to skirt the question in such a way that would satisfy um, somebody that who's only asking the initial question. And on the, on the question of evangelism, like, right, I know gay evangelists. So you can't we can't just say, do we go to an evangelical church? Because what do they perceive to be the good news and to what is it leading people? And so true. And look, the the left is really good with language. I mean, that's part of the uh, uh, the point of this book is that our language has been hijacked. And so they're they're grabbing a hold of terminologies um, that are are familiar, you know, to to Christians. And they're using them, though, in just slightly distorted ways 
that are bringing us further and further away from the gospel. And here's why this is so important. This this isn't just about denominational differences, you know, or doctrinal differences on on a small scale. You know, we we might have a different view of speaking in tongues or or how to perform a baptism or you know maybe uh, what what the order of a church service should be like across our denominations. Those things all can exist within a greater sense of orthodoxy of right teaching. But when we start dealing with things about you know the authority of the Word of God, the lordship of Jesus, the uh, um, you know the the uh, the design of creation. These are major issues that really decide whether or not we are actually operating in Christian faith or not. And it's so important that we make sure that we're not, you know, uh, almost accidentally falling into a place of worship. I mean, I'm in a, I'm in a red state in a blue county. I'm downtown South Bend right now. And there's four or five churches down here that are flying rainbow flags and BLM flags above the cross right now. And, and they have made it very clear that these social issues and these sort of in vogue, you know, uh, moral stances are more important than their position to the lordship of Jesus. And I think that this is not just happening in my county. This is happening across the country. Some churches are not as obvious with it. Uh, but this teaching is has, I think, created a greater divide in the church today than even what existed during the Reformation. And I don't think enough people are talking about it. And I really wrote this book, The Christian Left, to bring attention to this and really empower believers to return back to uh, really the foundation of the Bible and Christian and the Christian faith. So I'm glad that um, we circled around to let's be reading the Bible, because that's what you recommend as the like sort of number one uh, things of, of, uh, on the to-do list of the person who wants to be redemptive in this conversation and in their church. We need to be reading the Bible. Look, if you don't have Scripture really grounded in your heart, you're you're destined for error on one side or the other. You're going to fall into fundamentalism or you're going to fall into progressivism. And it'd be very easy for somebody from the outside to probably label me a fundamentalist because of these things I'm teaching. But, you know, the reality is that fundamentalism is is uh, almost as dangerous as progressivism. It's And how we balance that is we recognize that Jesus, the Bible tells us that he came in grace and truth. And so when we always put grace and truth at the forefront of everything that we do, and not our truth, not your truth, but the truth, and where do we find that? We find that in Scripture. And so as believers, we have to come back to Scripture as our source, as our guide, as, as really the, um, uh, the, the, the final uh, vote that's casted on which side of, uh, of a particular issue is true. And this has to be a foundation for our lives every single step of the way. So we have listeners who are asking um, about, you know, reading books that are being offered up maybe on the other side of the ideological uh, part of this conversation. So let's just say The Color of Compromise. Um, Should churches be reading and studying books like The Color of Compromise in order to understand uh, liberal ideas? My response was only after reading the Bible and getting a really clear sense of what God has said um, about these things. You know, I was listening to a uh, social psychologist here recently that was talking about how if someone sits down to write a paper um, making a case for a position that is opposite to what they believe, but they kind of do the exercise of writing this, that that has been shown to actually alter some of their beliefs over time. And that there's something about when we kind of uh, uh, immerse ourselves. Now, look, I think that somebody at these churches should be looking at these other things. 
but I don't think the whole church needs to do an exercise where everybody in the church, you know, reads white fragility or something like that. I think it's important that people do the deep dive. I'm somebody who I feel like it's my job to do the deep dive for the rest of America, you know, and so I've been diving in. I've been reading all the books that you can think of in that space going back 50 years, you know, the foundations of liberation theology, et cetera. Um, and I it's and it's it's uh, it's trying. Uh, it's it's very uh, it's discouraging. You read some of these things. They're so depressing. Um, but I feel like I need to help people break this down and understand it. But more than anything, we need to come back to Scripture. And I think there's a lot of great arguments that are made in other books, you know, not just mine, but, you know, things like the, the Christian left that people can go in that kind of quickly breaks down the theology and then they can go in it further. It's not to say that you should never do kind of this counter research. Um, but I think that, you know, uh, new converts and people that are maybe new to their faith or not as established in the word should be careful that they don't just create a lot more confusion in their life. It's an excellent um it's it's an excellent book. It's also brief, and I appreciate that as well. Um, if you're interested in a, a copy of The Christian Left, How Liberal Thought Has Hijacked the Church, we have some copies to give away. Text the word BOOK to 877-933-2484. Also check out what Lucas is doing. He's got a ton of stuff going on, lucasmiles.org. Lucas, thank you so much. Hey, thanks for having me. Absolutely. We'll be right back. All right, let's not just go out there and be characters. Let's be people who have the character of Christ. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.